You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Or just better now. That's all you can say. Run, Lindsay! Lindsay, stop! Lindsay, stop! Lindsay, stop! Welcome to the Blog the Dogs podcast. I'm Herschel Gurley here as always with my co-host, Boss Dog. Boss Parker to people. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have another interview guest for you, two-time All-American defensive back, Terry Hogue. Yeah, Terry's got a really interesting story. Um, Obviously had a prolific career at Georgia, one of, I believe, only five Heisman finalists in Georgia history. Uh, Went on to have a very successful NFL career and in retirement, uh, him and his wife started a winery, TH Estate Wines, that they currently preside over um, as winemakers and proprietors. Uh, good products. Uh, they're based out of Paso Robles, California. So encourage you to go check them out. Check them out on Instagram. It's at TH underscore Estate Wines. So at TH underscore Estate Wines. And then you can find them on the web at THEstateWines.com. Cool part about Terry's Wines is that they're all, they all kind of have two meanings, double entendre to him. So they got to um, talk about stuff that happened in his football career and, and also things that pertain to wine development and stuff like that. So first, I believe the first wine they ever produced was called the Hedge in honor of uh, the Hedges at Sanford Stadium. So uh, great, great chat with Terry. Really enjoyed spending time with him and certainly appreciate him giving us his time and, and telling us all his stories. So without further ado, here is our interview with former Georgia defensive back and Heisman finalist Terry Hope. We are thrilled to be joined today by Terry Hogue. Terry is the proprietor and winemaker of TH Estate Wines in Paso Robles, California. He is a graduate of the University of Georgia, where he received his degree in genetics. He was a member of the football team from 1980 to 1983, where he played defensive back. He had a decorated career as a two-time All-American, a Heisman Trophy finalist, and he was named the 1984 SEC Athlete of the Year. He was drafted by the New Orleans Saints in the 1984 NFL Draft, went on to have a successful 13-year career in the NFL. He is part of the Georgia-Florida Hall of Fame, the College Football Hall of Fame, the College Sports Information Director of America Academic Hall of Fame, the Georgia Sports Hall of Fame. He won a Super Bowl uh, with the Redskins in Super Bowl 26. And Vince Dooley once said he is the best defensive player I've ever coached and maybe the best one I've ever seen. Terry, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Welcome to the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And after that introduction, I think you got it all. I think we could be done. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, there's there's a lot more depth to that story. I'm just interested to talk with you just because I feel like there are so many layers and so many interesting things about your story. And you kind of have to start with, with your time at Huntsville High School. So can you tell us a little bit about playing high school football in Texas and, and what your journey to the University of Georgia was like from Huntsville? Yeah, I guess uh, we'll start a little bit before uh, Huntsville High School. You know, I grew up like any kid, uh, you know, just running around and playing sports and having fun as I was growing up. We used to play a game which is no longer uh, politically correct. And whoever had the ball is, you know, and so that was kind of the starting of my interest in football was that game. Uh, my dad also put a basketball hoop up uh, when I was a little kid over the garage and I, I shot baskets forever. I mean, I, I loved basketball. I was always playing sports. I guess about the time I was in seventh grade, I started playing organized football in at the seventh grade uh, level. We had four teams. It was intramural. Uh, I was left tackle for the first game and then moved quarterback for the second game. So um, I decided that if they ever ask you to put your hand on the ground, you really don't want to play football. You, know, <laughs> you kind of want to play it standing up. So I got kind of uh, introduced into the sports program in Huntsville, which was a relatively good sports program. We had a basketball little league when I was growing up. Uh, it was called Little Dribblers. It was a national league. And uh, we ended up winning that, the national championship in that three or four years in a row. So there was a, a really high level of competition in Huntsville, even though we were a very small town in East Texas, probably when I was growing up, 15,000 or so. But I made it into uh, into high school, ended up playing on the varsity basketball team and the varsity football team as a sophomore. I was quarterback and defensive back in football and then in basketball. I played with some amazing guys uh, as a freshman and sophomore, and those were the years that we won the, the state championship in basketball in high school. Some amazing, uh, amazing basketball players. But I got to, I got along. I got to play along in that. And then in, in football, we had some great athletes as well. Um, you know, I think we won our district every year. Uh, we went to the state playoffs every year. Uh, we never did win state, but uh, you know, Friday night in Huntsville, Texas, on a high school, it's a high school football night, is very much probably like what that TV show was like. We played in Sam Houston State University Stadium, which probably held about 15,000, 20,000 people. Uh, and it was standing room only every Friday night. Uh, Sam, oh, Houston, wow. Sam Houston State couldn't, couldn't fill it. But, you know, the town, Huntsville, was our colors were green and white. We were the Hornets. Um, you know, you see people, I don't know if they do this anymore, but they used to make these little ribbons that you would pin on and they'd bring them, you know, it's kind of a, a spirit thing. And, and <clears throat> so the whole town was behind it. Uh, so probably very, mu very much like uh, what people would think Texas football would be like. A lot of pressure. Uh, I ended up playing uh, both ways uh, my junior and senior year. So I very rarely came off the field, uh, played strong safety and quarterback. I was not a passer. We ran the power eye. So basically all I did was take the hand, take the snap and hand it off to somebody. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was fun to be, you know, I, I held on extra points. I punted. So, you know, I got to do a little bit and it was a very good team. And so I got to do a lot of, a, a lot of stuff, but I was never a great athlete. And I, I, I never growing up shooting baskets, you know, my, on the hoop my dad put up or any of those things. I never envisioned myself. My ultimate goal was not to go to the NFL. 
It was not to play professional sports. I can't say that I really had any other plan because I really didn't. I was just kind of a little kid living life. So, you know, I went through high school and people started talking to me about, do you want to go to college or do you want to go play football in college? Not do you want to go to college. My dad was a college professor. I was going to college. That wasn't a question. (laughs) I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. You know, I got a recruiting visit to the University of Houston Cougars. I went on a recruiting visit to the University of Texas Arlington in Arlington, Texas. And, you know, they were fine. I didn't really think anything about it. And it wasn't like I was like really pursuing uh, playing football. University of Texas never came calling. Uh, My dad, like I said, is a college professor at Sam Houston State in Huntsville. They wouldn't give me a scholarship. Basically, they told my dad I was just good enough to get him beat. So, wow. yeah, my dad uh, didn't take very kindly to that, as you can, as you I can wouldn't have either, you know, and I was just like, oh, OK, whatever. You know, I just taken my SAT and I didn't take the ACT, but you know, I was planning on going to University of Texas with uh, the rest of my friends, you know, and just going to college. Uh, my dad had a desire for me to play football further. And he had a, a, a friend that he had coffee with every day uh, who had connections at the University of Georgia. And it's got the, the gentleman's name is Dick Payne, who's now deceased, but Dick or Dr. Payne, um, you know, kept calling whoever it was that he knew and at the, at the university of Georgia and saying, Hey, you need to come look at this kid. Hey, you need to come look at this kid. And I think they just kind of kept pushing him off and pushing him off. And, uh, I was talking with Mike Cavan and Steve Greer, uh, Steve Greer recently. I just saw him when they were, uh, 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 naming the uh, Dooley Field, had an opportunity to talk to him. And I was, you know, I, I asked him, I was like, you know, what, what was the whole deal with my recruitment? And how did all that work? And he goes, well, you know, this great crazy guy kept calling the, the administrators and saying, hey, there's this kid in Huntsville, Texas, you need to come come look at. And basically Mike Kevin and, and, and Steve Greer were in charge of the recruitment of Herschel Walker. So they spent a lot of time, evidently, down in Wrightsville, kind of babysitting Herschel and, and, you know, probably putting a fence up around him so that nobody else could could (laughs) get to him. I don't know exactly what they did, but at some point, uh, Steve said, he he and Mike looked at each other and said, I'm sick and tired of sitting in Wrightsville. Uh, Let's go look at that kid in Texas. And so they flew out to Texas and... um, Went to, went to my high school, made an appointment with my uh, head coach, a guy named Joe Clements. And they said, you know, we want to look, we want to see some film on one of your players. And so he said, no problem, come in. He, and he set the projector up and everything. And he started running the projector and he started talking about Lloyd Archie, who was this really good athlete that was on our, on our team, who uh, I, I had grown up with. And, you know, it was just a, a natural ability tall, strong, fast, played great basketball, could do pretty much anything. And they looked at him and said, oh, no, we're not here to look at him. We're here to look at Terry Hogue. And he was like, what? Who? Terry Hogue? He goes, yeah, we want to look at Terry Hogue. And evidently, the, Joe Clements was just baffled by why they would come all the way to Georgia. And, I, and Steve gave me a very nice compliment. And I said, well, you know, how did the film look and stuff? He goes, you know, we looked at the film for about five minutes and we knew that we wanted to get you. I was like, oh, oh that's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty good. So they, so they walked out, I guess, with a good feeling. But, you know, I didn't really hear anything from anybody for a really long time. And so I was continuing to make my plans to go to the University of Texas, Austin, and do my undergraduate school there. 
And probably two or three days before the national signing date, I don't remember when it is. I think it's, it was in March at the time. I don't know when it is now, probably about the same time. I got a call from Bill Lewis, uh, who was the backfield defensive backfield coach for the University of Georgia. And says, uh, he said, we would like to sign you t- to a letter of intent uh, for a scholarship to play football at University of Georgia. And because I had no other offers, I was obviously thrilled. Uh, yeah. But I, I didn't really kind of know how that whole thing transpired. And years and years later, probably now I'm in my 40s, mid-40s, late 40s, and I was at an event with Coach Dooley. And I was finally had grown up enough to not look at it as a kind of a coach-player relationship, but just kind of of a man-to-man conversation. And we started talking. I said, Coach, you know, I have to ask you because it's I've wondered my entire life, why did you offer me a scholarship? And he said, well, you know, Terry, to be honest with you, I needed somebody who was going to go to class, who was going to graduate, and was going to be kind of a collegiate athletic person that we could hold up. And in the next breath, he looked at me and goes, I had no idea you could play football. (laughs) Um, So Bill Lewis flew out on signing day. We took pictures. I signed my name to the dotted line. Packed up my red pickup truck a few months later and, and headed to the University of Georgia, not knowing anything about Georgia football, not knowing anything about Georgia tradition. Uh, you know, the first Georgia game I saw or experienced was one I dressed out for. So I, ca- I came to it as a completely naive young man. So your first time in Athens on campus was when you drove in in your truck with all your stuff to, to no, enroll? I came, I, came, I came for a winter visit, and uh, John Lastinger was my host. Wonderful guy. And, but we, were, we had been playing in the state playoffs for basketball. And so I played a game the night before and then flew out kind of red eye and it came to Georgia and they took me around and showed me the campus. And then they introduced me to John and John's responsibility is to take me out and show me a good time and, you know, make sure that I really want to come to Georgia. And so we got done with whatever we had to do with the coaches and stuff. And now it was supposed to be free time. He goes, what would you like to do? And I said, to be honest with you, I just would like to go back to my hotel room and go to bed. I was exhausted. And he he looked at me and he was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, really? That's what I want to do. And so he took me back to the hotel. I got out. I said, Hey, John, thanks a lot. I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, and he drove off and he, he said he was shaking. He says, that kid will never come to the university of Georgia. <laughs> uh, so that was, that was my first time to the university of Georgia it was kind of in and out, but yeah, the first game I saw experienced in any way, was one of the first games in the 1980 season. And I, I got to say, it was, it was probably the first, no, the first game was in Tennessee. So I didn't travel. I didn't see that. I didn't see that game. So it was the night, it was probably the first home game. And it was when they were just starting to fix the, in, the East end zone there by the tracks. And yeah, so you, yeah. and so you had to actually walk through the stands. So you would dress at the Coliseum and then you, we would all hop on buses, you'd go over and kind of park there on that street, there in front of the railroad tracks. And then we would walk down through the stadium to go to the locker room. And 
that was, I mean, people were standing there cheering like they do probably now on the dog walk. I mean, it was yeah for a kid from East Texas, even though we had had a very successful program, it was eye-opening to see just the, the passion that the fans had. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your freshman year, because my understanding is that freshman year you were on the scout team and there was no plans to to bring you up. And then there were doing field goal kicks, uh, special teams practice in the week leading up to the Sugar Bowl, which is the national title game that year. And you block a number of kicks in practice and Coach Dooley decides, well, we're going we're to have him up for special teams for the title game. And then can you, can you kind of talk about that and then obviously what, yeah, what happened absolutely. in the game? Absolutely. Yeah, so I came to the University of Georgia. You know, I dress out. I put my stuff on. Uh, I'm a freshman, you know, so obviously I'm on the scout team and stuff. And I'm just out there trying to, you know, naively. I mean, I didn't know, did I belong here? Did I not belong here? It didn't matter. I, I didn't even, it never even crossed my mind I was here. Uh, so, you know, I went out and I, I did the best that I could. I can remember early in practices during a season, probably during two a days or right before we started the season, I was on the scout team and we were, you know, playing the, the scout team defense for the offense. And they ended up putting me at linebacker and I filled a hole. And the next thing I knew, I was nine yards deep in the end zone, laying on my back, looking up at the sky and, uh, Steve Greer, who was one of the guys who recruited me, kind of leans over me and looks straight down at me and goes, welcome to the SEC. (laughs) (laughs) And at that moment, I knew that I would never, ever let that happen to me again. And then a couple weeks later, we were doing one of our first scrimmages and it was in the stadium. And I was on the scout. They put me on a scout team again and they handed the ball to Herschel Walker. And I filled the hole and I stood him up and everybody helped me push him back. And the coaches were, came up and they were like, you know, slapping you on your helmet. Like you do, like I already probably had a concussion from the hit and they're like, bang in my head. Um, but that made, they were like, that's the way, you know, that's the way you do it. That's the way you play. That's the, and um, so I was like, at that point I was like, okay, I, I know I, I know I belong. It's just a matter of finding my time. I was fortunate enough in my freshman year, nobody, I don't think even the coaches remember this. Obviously, it's my life, so I remember more than they do. But we played both Texas A&M and and TCU my freshman year. I was from Texas. I was the only Texan on the squad. So I got to dress out for both of those games. And I actually got to play the last quarter in both of those games. And uh, I actually caused a fumble in one of the games and recovered it. It was kind of my first big play for the University of Georgia, which nobody ever remembers. But to me, it was a huge deal. It was like on the field during game time against people, against first string teams from another school, I was able, yeah. to, I was able to do these things. And it just made me feel like I belong. You know, went through the whole season, played in the TCU game, a&M game, and then they took me down to Florida to play in the Florida-Georgia game. I got to play special teams in the Georgia-Florida game. So I was there for the Buck Baluda-Lindsey Scott play. Yeah. Wow. What an, ex- what an exciting play. Uh, yeah. Just absolutely amazing. Just got caught up in the, in the excitement of it. 
I didn't leave the sideline though. I was like the only guy who didn't leave the sideline. <laughs> very, very rule conscious at the, at the time, you know, my, my emotion was not going to overwhelm me. So now, you know, I'm starting to feel like I'm part of the, of the team. People actually know who my name is, you know, who my name and, and I've actually done a couple things, you know, they win and we're, they're going to the sugar bowl. We're getting ready to play. And they had put me on the practice squad, which means that I was not going to travel to New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl. I was only there to play scout team for these guys. Right. And see, so one of the days we were doing uh, special teams. So we were going through all the kicking, you know, kickoff, kickoff return, all that kind of stuff. We got to um, our offense field goal kick, and they put me on the scout team. On This was on the old AstroTurf field that they had out there. I don't even know if they have that field anymore. Uh, kind of a gray, cold day. And I asked him, what do you want me to do? And they said, just stand there, you know, live it up front, but you know, you don't have to do anything back here in the back. And I was like, okay, literally I'm standing there bored to death, cold, <laughs> and I'm watching and I'm watching the snapper and the snapper's got to tell I can, he tapped, he tapped his finger and then he gripped he never snapped without tapping his finger. So I watched him and I was like, eh. I, and I'm, I'm looking at kind of the offensive defensive line and I'm thinking, you know what? I was a high jumper in high school. And I was like, I bet I could jump over that line and block the kick. So I didn't tell anybody. And sure enough, the snapper taps his finger and I'm going, I'm going, he snaps the ball. I time it perfectly where the offensive defensive lines are kind of hitting at a low level, you know, like, waist high, something like that. I go over the top, I block the kick and nobody knows what happened. Coaches are just running off the sidelines, screaming and yelling at the <laughs> offensive line. And they're like, I did, I did, I did what I was supposed to do. What? And so nobody knows what happened and we line it up again and I do it again. And so now the offensive linemen are just <laughs> getting totally rain and they're they're probably not that pleased with me because now people saw how the kick got blocked they said can you do it again i'm like well i'll try well now all the offensive linemen were just completely pissed and so they didn't (laughs) they didn't block anybody in front of them and they, they just drove me into the ground head first and you know that happened a couple more times so we went up to the top field we were doing some punts after safety, and I was the punter guy. I told you that I punted in high school. And so Coach Dooley is coaching me up and goes, can you kick it over there? And I just kicked it, and it like went right there. He goes, can you kick it over there? I kicked it over there, and it went right there. And he goes, can you kick one? It only goes kind of like up in the air a little bit. And, and, and then I did that. He's looking at me like, who are you? And I'm, <laughs> I'm just having fun. We went to punt. And I ended up blocking two or three punts in a row. Boom, boom, boom. Same center was the center that was snapping for uh, field goals as right. as for punts. So I had the same tell with his tapping his finger. And so I lined up right on his nose and I would just watch his hand. And as soon as he stopped tapping, I would I went. And so I was able to swim him avoid the personal protector and block like two or three punts in a row. And 
this sometimes it makes it chokes me up a little bit because this is kind of the point at which my career changed at the University of Georgia. Uh, yeah. Coach Dooley calls the entire team up in the middle of practice. Every you know, every people from the lower field, everybody, everybody. There's this huge line of people. Nobody knows what's going on. And uh, Coach Dooley said, "We are going to take Terry Hogue to the Sugar Bowl, and he's going to block kicks for us. I'm making oh, a battle. Awesome. I'm making a battlefield promotion." And he sent me in, and uh, so I, I did tear up a little bit. Oh, that's um, so awesome. So that was kind of that's when I made it, made a name for myself at that point in time. Now the coaches tried to coach us up and make us make it better because, you know, that's what coaches do. So they decided that they wanted to have Frank Ross, uh, who was on the field goal block team drop to his hands and knees. And then I was supposed to run and step on his back and jump and launch off of him. I probably kicked him in the ass six times in one day. <laughs> and he went, to, he went to the coaches and says, you can't, I won't be able to play. It's like, I got bruises all over my ass and it hurts. So they said, well, they, then the coaches came to me and said, what, what do you need? And I said, really, all I need is I need all of the defensive linemen to just cut the offensive linemen to keep them low and keep their hands down so they can't get up and get to me. And if you look at the picture that's in Sports Illustrated after that game, uh, it's a picture of me outstretched with the ball hitting me directly in my chest. And behind, in the background, you can see Frank Ross has cut two people to the ground. And basically, I just had this thing to jump through and block. What a, yeah, what a great memory. And, you know, things just kind of kept going like that for me for the rest of my collegiate career. Yeah. So I read something and tell me if this is wrong, but I read that, you know, you go in and you become a starter as a sophomore playing the Rover position on defense. And then there was a time after your sophomore year where you contemplated not coming back and playing football. Is, is that right? That's true. Yeah. I didn't realize that in the college they played football 24, seven, 12 months a year. I mean, if you weren't practicing for football in the fall, you were doing winter workouts, you were, you had, there was spring ball, you know, they wanted you to stay there in the summer. And I had started as a sophomore, had a pretty decent year, didn't have any interceptions, but, you know, was kind of learning how to fit into that system and, and what I could and couldn't do in, in that system. But we got into spring ball and I'm not a big guy. I'm six, three, six, four. At the time, I probably if if I weighed two hundred and one soaking wet, I was super heavy. So it's not like I was this big, huge, muscular guy, and I was my body and mind were take. I was getting beat. You know, my body was getting beat. My brain was getting beat. I was just, and I went to Coach uh, Lewis, who was my position coach, and I said, "Hey, Coach Lewis, I, I really don't think I want to continue to do this." I said, "I." I never thought that I would do something 24 hours a day. You know, I love to play football, but I just, all of this other stuff, I say, I, you know, I can't take the labs that I want to take. I can't, you know, I'm not getting the, the kind of the college experience that I wanted. And, you know, I, I don't think I want to play football. And, and I said, you know, so you know, I was going to quit. I said, I want to quit. And he goes, well, don't quit right now. And he goes, uh, you know, I'll take care of you through the end of, uh, spring break or spring practices. I don't have any, how many practices were left. 
And he was true to his word in that, you know, I came to practice. Uh, we would go through a drill. Every time I would come up where it was my time to go to a drill, we would move to another drill. And at the end of the, the spring practices, I went back to him. I said, you know, I coach, I, I still don't think I want to play. And he says, well, okay. Uh, we didn't really have any more conversations about that. I went to Colorado uh, for the summer and I spent all summer, so two, three months, uh, hiking through Colorado, going to all these 14,000 foot peaks and, and just kind of having a relaxing escape from kind of civilization and all of the other things that were going on. And then I went back to Huntsville. This is, I don't know when we started training cancer, but it's probably late July, early August. And I'm sitting around with my folks and I'm looking at them and I'm going, well, I definitely don't want to do this. And so I said, I told him, I said, I'm going to drive back to Georgia. So I drove back to Georgia. I didn't tell anybody. I walked into the coach's office, found coach Lewis and said, Hey coach Lewis, you know, I know that I quit. I know that you guys have probably made plans without me. And I totally understand that. I would like to come back and play if you would have me. And you can put me last on the depth chart. It doesn't matter to me. That's fine. I understand. Evidently, he had never towed Coach Dooley. So they moved me right back into where I was. And that was the year that I led the nation in interceptions. And I think, yes. and I think in that respect, it came from the peace of mind that I had gotten with the escape from what I was doing. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask about because I had never heard that full fleshed out story. So that's extremely interesting. So obviously, you have a historic year, your junior year, twelve interceptions, which led the nation, and I believe is still the SEC record for interceptions in a season, if I'm remembering right. So you have a huge year that year, and then you lead into your senior year. You have another phenomenal year, blocking kicks, sacking the quarterback, uh, just playing great. Team has another great year, and you get included in the Heisman conversation and get to go to New York. For those no, listeners that have, ne- I didn't get to go to didn't New get- York. No. Oh, didn't get to go to New York. Uh, oh, I thought I read an article where you, only, were, you had gotten to go to New York with the whole crew. No, I. They only took the top three at the time, and so I. Was, oh, I didn't. I was fifth. I, and oh, so I didn't my, realize my college. That. My college room. My my cupboard. Who who was doing? Who did Herschel's campaign and also did Bo Jackson's campaign over in Auburn? Uh, was in charge of my campaign, and I used to give him a lot of grief because I was like fifth. You couldn't get me third. I mean, every, everybody else gets to go up to to New York, and and I don't. But no, I mean, it was fine. I mean, all of that to me was not. <laughs> don't get me wrong; it's a, it's a it's a wonderful honor. I'm, I'm humbled by it, but it was never something that I sought. It's it's hard to to describe, but all of these things that I was doing were just kind of that came out of me from not a desire to do anything other than just be my best in at what I was doing. And I had no expectations. I ha- didn't think that I was going to get drafted in the NFL. I mean, that was not an in, that was not an in game goal for me getting drafted in the, in the NFL. It was what I was doing right then right now that was really enthralling to me. Yeah. So speak on that a little bit, because you alluded to earlier that part of the reason you were looking at walking away is because you couldn't get the labs you were wanting to do. And I know you were a genetics major. You were a very good student. And I had read that your 
intention was to pursue medical school after undergrad was done. Was that the plan? And then when did that change? And when did you come to the realization that, hey, you know, there may be a path for me in professional football? I was fortunate enough to get drafted. Uh, I got drafted by the New Orleans Saints. I didn't realize at the time, I mean, we didn't win a lot of games, but I didn't realize at the time uh, how lucky I was to have gotten drafted by that particular team and that particular coach. It was Bum Phillips and and Wade Phillips. Bum, amazing coach. Perfect place for me uh, because he didn't have a lot of rules. He just said, you know how to act. You're a man. You know, that's my rule. Unfortunately, we didn't win a lot of games and he and Wade ended up getting fired. At that point in time, I was still thinking I would go to, to medical school. Uh, I really looked at, you know, when I got drafted going into the NFL, I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll play for a few years, bank a little bit of money, and then go back to medical school. I won't have to live like a starving artist uh, medical student. I'll be able to like, right. you know, stay someplace nice and, and do my life. I got ended up getting picked up by Buddy Ryan and, uh, and Wade Phillips was a defensive coordinator for Buddy when I got picked up up there in 1986. Buddy ran a 46 defense, which is extremely similar to the split 60 that Irk Russell ran at the University of Georgia. Then there was a rover position in that defense. And so it just fit. Everything fit. And I didn't ever have to think because it was the same defense. So I'd already played this defense for like four years at Georgia. And so I was able to, to step in. And, uh, you know, there was a, a year with Buddy. You know, I led the league in interceptions again, kind of a, after a personal, but kind of along the same lines. It was just this year that kind of came out of nowhere. And, and I was able to do uh, a lot of amazing things. That I lasted 13 years, it's amazing to me. Uh, but I'm very grateful for it. Well, I want to talk about your first two stops in the NFL, New Orleans and Philadelphia, because they have a lot of impact on your, your future life. Because in New Orleans, my understanding, you met your wife. Is that right? I did. I did. And she, she was working for New Orleans Magazine, if, if I read correctly? Yeah, she, uh, she did the dining and entertainment section for New Orleans Magazine, did all their editorial copy, you know, had to sell ads, and it was a small publication, did the whole thing. We were set up by Morton Anderson. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, At his uh, 25th birthday party uh, in August uh, sometime. I can't remember exactly when it is. Uh, We actually have a picture from that night that somebody took of us, which is pretty cool. You know, they took a picture minutes after Jennifer and I uh, got engaged in conversation. So it's right at the beginning of our our relationship. Oh, how cool is that? Uh, It's a pretty meaningful uh, photo. What I found out later was that uh, Morton Anderson had asked my wife Jennifer out on a date and Lisa Tudor, his girlfriend, was acquaintance friends with Jennifer. And so she figured she would get Morton off her scent if she introduced him to one of his teammates. And so it, oh, worked, it, worked, it worked out for both of us, I guess. So I understand when y'all first met, though, you were not a wine drinker. You were a beer drinker. Our first date was at Flagon's Wine Bar. She had wine. I had a beer. Yeah. And so the reason I bring up Philadelphia in that, is, that equation is I read that you made a contact or met someone in Philadelphia, I can't remember, a restaurant owner that was either a sommelier or, or very into wine. And that's how you kind of came to that um, education. Yeah, I didn't come to the, I, I didn't become like being a file or, or whatever, but I'd never really consumed much wine and I didn't know anything about it. Um, my agent, 
Jim Solana was very good friends with a, a gentleman named George Perrier, who owned a, a restaurant called Lebec Fen in Philadelphia. It was the first three-star Michelin restaurant in the United States in the 70s. You know, kind of a kind of a big deal place. But yeah. there, uh, there was a psalm there. What was his name? I'm not going to be able to remember it off the top of my head. Gregory. And so every once in a while, my agent and I, on the way home or, you know, on a, on a Friday afternoon uh, before they open, we might stop by. Gregory would be there and George would be there and we'd sit down and kind of just yuck it up. And Gregory would start bringing me wines and pouring wines. And I would be like, ugh, that sucks. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that. What is that? You know, so I, that was where I started to develop my palate. It was in a, you know, very low key. I wasn't looking for real technical information. I was just kind of learning what I liked, what I didn't like, the reasons for, for that. So it was just kind of the, the genesis of me paying attention uh, to wine when I drank wine. Jennifer and I got a little bit more interested in wine when I did my stint with the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, we got, oh, yeah. we got two days off every time we won. We won every week I was there. Uh, so we would get uh, Monday, Tuesday off. And so Jennifer and I would cruise up to Napa and go around and here again, a, a, another kind of informal training and things that I was interested in. Still not a venophile. We started ordering a little bit of wine, but we, we still lived in, I mean, even though I played for San Francisco, I only stayed out there for the season and I came back to Philly. Um, Philly doesn't, isn't really a great wine consumer region and mm-hmm. they, they have a monopoly that controls what comes into the state. So it's a very fine, it's a very limited selection. So Jennifer and I, you know, we get wine every once in a while and bring it back. My interest in wine grew a little bit more. I retired in Arizona, uh, decided that I wanted to, to raise my kids in an agrarian community, kind of one that was grounded in, in agriculture, hard work. And so we ended up moving from Phoenix to Templeton, Paso Robles, where we live now. Still naive about wine. When Jennifer and I were driving around the area when we were contemplating moving here, looked at all of the vineyards and we're like, what do you think they do with all this, these grapes? Make raisins? I mean, well, honestly, we didn't. We, we didn't know. Uh, Paso Robles was still a, a extremely unknown uh, AVA uh, wine AVA, and so I started. I started my education kind of anew here. Uh, then made friends with some guys who are the leading the leading winemakers in the area, uh, and it looked like a lot of fun. Included farming and driving a tractor, which I enjoyed. I'd, been, I'd spent my entire life outside. And so slowly, Jennifer and I kind of organically grow into a position where we had the opportunity to buy what we have now. And we took the plunge and uh, jumped into the wine industry. Yeah, so flesh that out a little bit for me. So I understand it was kind of a two-year journey. Y'all moved to California in 2000. Is that right? Correct. Did I read that Jennifer was still going back to Arizona and running her company in Arizona and coming back and forth? And um, so y'all are kind of working through it and y'all have a friend that you meet once you move into community, Justin Smith. And Justin has a uh, uh, just a broad palate and understands the wine industry, all these things. It, it, is that my yeah, that, I mean, right? those are those are the high points. Uh, Jennifer had started a, a interior design uh, business when she was in when we were in Arizona. Uh, she was doing extremely well. Um, 
even though we kind of wanted to make this move for our kids, she didn't want to give up this thing that she had created because, uh, um, you know, it was, it was a piece of her and she was doing extremely, extremely well. It's kind of hard to turn your back on, on, you know, making money. Right. Um, so when we decided to make the move, we looked at ba- basically our criteria was someplace that she could fly back to Phoenix to in about two to three hours. So we kind of drew that circle and then looked at places in that circle where we could live. We ended up, somebody tell, told us about uh, the central coast of uh, California. I'd never heard of it. Didn't even really know that it existed, although I guess there's got to be a central coast of any coast. But I always envisioned kind of the suburbs of L.A. dwindling down to a few small neighborhoods and then the neighborhoods of San Francisco starting to pick up. And then you're in, I would, that's kind of the way I envisioned the, the, the coast. You know, I had no idea that there's, you know, probably 300 miles of absolutely pristine, gorgeous countryside. We ended up moving to Paso Robles, Templeton area because they had just started a flight from San Luis Obispo uh, oh, yeah. to Phoenix. It was a couple of old De Havilland Dash 8s, kind of turboprops, took two hours and 45 minutes. And Jennifer decided that that was something that we could do. So we ended up buying a property in Templeton. Uh, It was a school district that we wanted to go to. I wanted my my kids to to go to a particular school. And uh, so we bought a house, moved over here, and Jennifer continued to commute. So she would leave Mondays, Monday mornings, and then get back Thursday night, Friday. And I was Mr. Mom, uh, which was not a bad thing. At the time, I would drop my kids off at school. Uh, I have a friend, a guy named Pete Dakin, who owns Remax Parkside. Uh, he sees all the real estate deals in the area. So we would go out and yuck it up and play golf. It just kind of worked out that, you know, by the time I got, got done with golf, I could pick the kids up from school, take them home. Yeah. Uh, everything was peaceful. One day, Pete, I hop in the car to drive out to the golf course with him and he says, uh, I got to look at a piece of property. Do you mind if we stop by and look at this on the way out? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Because I, I love, you know, just kind of walking property with him and looking at everything. And he brought me to the place that I own now. And we walked around, looked at it. And I talked to him a little bit about it. It had uh, five acres of, of vineyard on it at the time. And I asked Pete his opinion. And then I'd met Justin Smith. And so Justin Smith was acquaintance, growing friend of mine. And I said, hey, Justin, I'm standing on the old Winchester property on Arbor Road. What do you think about it? And he said, you know, it's a nice piece. Uh, You could make world-class wines off of that property. And I said, well, I can't make world-class wines. Uh, (laughs) But but you could. Would you show me what I need to know? And he said, sure, not a problem. And so I called up my wife, told her I was standing on this property, told her that I wanted to buy it told her that if we did, we would be in the wine business and we would change all of our plans. And without missing a beat, she said, okay. So that's cool. I made an offer middle of June or middle of July, closed beginning of August and ended up harvesting three weeks later. So it it was like immediately into the frying pan. Uh, Justin Smith made my wines in 2002 and 2003 Jennifer and I made our wines in 2004 at his facility. And then in 2005, the uh, little winery that I built was ready to move into. And so Justin kicked me out and said, it's time for you to, to 
get out of the nest and go fly, spread your wings. Uh, so Jennifer and I started in earnest in 2005, marketing the wines that Justin had made for us and that we were selling at the time and then kind of creating, you know, we didn't copy them. Uh, I mean, we were, we were, we started creating things that kind of fit our mindset and our palate. And, uh, you know, we got a lot of great publicity and reviews, uh, for the wines, uh, not just because of the sports connection, but also because of the quality of what we were putting out. And that made, and that made me feel really good. Obviously, with any business, there are varying degrees of ownership and involvement. But my understanding from reading your story and what was so interesting to me is that you and Jennifer are as involved as you can possibly be. It's my understanding that y'all built almost everything on the property. Is that right? Uh, yeah. You, you know, there, there's an old adage, the best way to make a small fortune in a wine business is to start with a large fortune. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have a large fortune and I couldn't afford to see something grow into a small fortune from a large fortune. So Jennifer and I put a ton of sweat equity into this. I don't do as much now, but for the first 13 to 15 years, yeah, um, you know, I, I did all the tractor work. I did all the, all the farming stuff that, that kind of one person can do. I designed the irrigation system. I had an uncle draw the, the, what, the bar that's now the winery, but then I, I built the winery. I wired the winery. Uh, I built my, my own uh, basket press. Uh, we built our own shaker tables. Basically, yeah, we were completely hands-on. I, I couldn't have afforded to do what we did uh, if I would have had to pay for outside technical help to do it. Uh, but yeah, we were hands-on. We did everything. We never got away from it. You know, we Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we were in a tasting room selling. The rest of the time, I was, uh, you know, making wine, blending wine, farming, turning dirt, or we were raising our kids. I mean, you got to remember that at this time, we still had uh, growing kids. Uh, right. My son, who's now 31, so you can do the math, whatever he was back then, um, he was born uh, with a, a physical disability. And so he gets around in a wheelchair. So one of the things that we were doing at this time was uh, trying to get him involved in wheelchair sports. Uh, there, were oh, yeah. only, there were only two wheelchair basketball teams in California for him to participate in. One was in San Francisco and one was in L.A. Too far for us to drive because they had to go to practice twice a week and the game. So getting my pilot's license and buying a little uh, Bonanza so that I could pick him up at school and fly him. It was in Long Beach. We'd fly down to Long Beach. I'd pick him up at like 2.30 We'd be at Long Beach. We'd be in Long Beach by four. Uh, he'd be done with practice by seven. We'd be back in the hangar by nine o'clock. And so that was kind oh, of that's our, cool. our day, three days a week. Uh, so we were raising him. And then, you know, my daughter was a tennis player and a, and a track kid. And so we had, we went and watched her do all of the things that she did. So not only were we kind of in the throes of just family life and like living our lives and, and going to Tango Tuesday, but we, you know, we were also creating a business. So we were relatively busy. We look back. We look back now during that period of time. We're like, "How did we do it? Yeah. yeah. How did how do we fit all of that stuff into a day?" Well, now, and as you've built the business, it's obvious based on everything I've read about it and all the research I did. Georgia and the the University of Georgia were never far from your heart, and that's evident in a lot of the wines and your football career. Can you speak on? the the names of the wines and the double entendres that are that are present with those sure uh you know i really didn't think anybody would take a football player seriously as a winemaker i felt like a lot of people would immediately think that i just threw a bunch of money at it and hired a bunch of experts to do it but they didn't really know the blood and sweat uh, that jennifer and i 
had put into it. So I, I didn't want my name on, on it. It was, this was not an ego thing. And I really pushed back against it for a really long time. We had discussions about what we were going to name, you know, the the winery for a very, very long time. And so finally uh, people convinced me to put our name on it. And so we were originally Hogue Vineyards. We got a cease and desist from a constellation who owned a, a winery called Hogue Cellars. Uh, spell, spelled a little bit differently. So then I started getting introduced to trademark law. So I learned that as well along the way. Yeah. So we had a TH, we had a TH on there. Actually, the people at Constellation were very nice in some ways and that they said, yeah, it's your name. We understand it. That's how you market it. But you know, you can't be Hogue. It can be Terry Hogue. You can be Terry Hogue Vineyards, uh, always together, always yada, yada. And then they put some limitations on me as far as size. At the time, I was like, oh, that's fine. I'm, I'm never going to do that much anyway. Well, lo and behold, a few years later, now I'm doing more than my limitation from them. And Jennifer and I decide to move away from the Terry Hogue Vineyards to TH. Um, we had TH Vineyards and TH Estate Wines. About the time that we made that decision, there was a company from Chile that came in and started producing uh, a wine called Terroir Hunter. They didn't realize that there's nobody in the United States that's going to be able to pronounce terroir. So they started doing TH. So we got into a legal battle that lasted about five years that Jennifer and I ultimately ended up winning. All about trademark law. And yeah. So we are now TH Estate Wines, TH Vineyards. And then my wife has a passion label that she does uh, called Decrew. After we had named the winery, which was one challenge, we were like, well, what do we name you know, what are the wines? Uh, when we bought the property, it only had Syrah on the, on the property. So there was no question that we were going to be making a Syrah. And I s- told Jennifer and she agreed that since we had put my name on it, that I might as well, not that I'm embarrassed to be a football player. I'm not. I just don't want to beat people over the head with it, you know, because it, it wasn't kind of the, the direction that we were going. Uh, but I said, you know, maybe we should pay homage to my career in some way. And so we came up with the idea to find some subtle uh, double entendres that might mean something to people in the wine industry and then would have a football relation. So the first one we named was The Hedge, 100% Syrah, all state wine. The Hedge colors are silver and black and red. That's the, that's the label. And I wanted to pay homage to the University of Georgia, which was basically the place that gave me the impetus to do all of these amazing things that I've been able to do in my adult life. And then secondly, I wanted to pay homage to Coach Dooley. Uh, so the 2002 vintage, which was released in 2004, had a uh, little paragraph on the back thanking Coach Dooley for all the things that he did uh, for me in my life and for not thinking that I could play a look of football, you know, that I just had to go to class. I, you know, I, so there's the hedge. Uh, the next wine that we made was a 50-50 Grenache Syrah, paid homage to Buddy Ryan and his 46 defense. That, that wine's called 46. Oh, the double entendre, hedge. Hedging is a pruning technique. You see it in France a lot. There are some people out here in the Paso area that do it, but not very many. I don't do it. It just happened to be kind of the, the football wine, double entendre. Uh, the yeah. The 46, uh, which is Kelly Green and Silver, just like the Philadelphia Eagles. But he's uh, 46 defense they invented, and you, you turn off a Highway 46, which is kind of the main thoroughfare through Paso Robles uh, to, get yeah. to, our, to get to our place created one called the pick 
interception, obviously, yeah. to pick or harvest. I have one called Five Blocks. I blocked five field goals at the University of Georgia. Uh, and that particular wine in its inception uh, came from five different blocks of fruit on our property. I have one named Skins after the Washington Redskins. And also skins and winemaking are extremely important because that's kind of that's where all your flavor profile and your color and you know everything that's good about wine is kind of in the skins. Uh, so that's the double entendre with that. I've got one called three four. My number was th- uh, thirty four at a lot of teams when I was in the NFL, and then that comes from an experimental block that I planted for Justin Smith, my mentor, when we first came in. Uh, he wanted me to do it meter by meter. But I said, we live in the United States, so can I do three feet by four feet? Yeah. And he said, sure. So that became three, four, three feet by four feet, and then also, also my number th- uh, 34. We have a wine, a uh, rosé called Bam Bam. My wife liked that one because when I was playing for Buddy, uh, and Buddy was a wonderful coach to play for, especially if you uh, were smart and, and you enjoyed thinking a lot. He put a lot of responsibility on the players on the field. Uh, and basically his, posi- his position was is that if the offense has time to call a play at the line of scrimmage, we have time to change our play. So we had nicknames for blitzes or, or defenses and stuff. There was a strong safety blitz. I played strong safety for Buddy for about half of my career with him. The other half I paid uh, free safety. Uh, but the free safety's nickname was Bam Bam. So Jennifer just thought it was the funniest thing that all of these grown men would be running around the field yelling, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> and that made her, of course, think of pebbles, pink, rosé. Yeah. Uh, don't know what the double entendre for that one is other than I do know uh, that when you drop a barrel off a forklift, it goes bam, bam. That's 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 as close as I can get. Uh, yeah, I, I, we probably have a couple of other names of, of wines. We do a lot of small production wines we've lost kind of the double entendre with some of it uh but we still try to have fun so tell our listeners if they want to buy wines in their local stores in their local states in the southeast or if they want to buy directly from y'all be part of wine clubs tell them how they can do that so we are distributed in georgia and florida if your local uh package store doesn't have it ask them for it we are distributed by savannah distributing which has offices in Atlanta and then also in Savannah. And they have our, you know, they have our SKUs that, that they can get to you. We do have placements at like the Hillstone restaurants in Atlanta, uh, where they pour one of my wines called district eight, um, by the glass. That would be someplace that you can get it, or you can always order it directly from us. Um, you can call, uh, look it up online. It's really pretty easy to find Google Terry Hogue, Terry Hogue wine comes up. It's a TH stop thstatewines.com. Uh, it looks like the state wines when you type it out. Uh, you can talk to any one of the guys that I got working for me, Phil, Will, Cyril, uh, or Brandon, uh, and they'd be more than happy to, to help you and, and kind of guide you through uh, uh, your purchase and to find the wines that you like. Jennifer and I got what we felt was a really nice Somebody said something really nice about us a long time ago. Uh, Robert Parker, who has a is a famous uh, wine critic at the time, said first of all that the, that the lineup of our wines they were, they were you could tell that they were all well made, uh, but they were all different. 
So I was like, well, I thought they were supposed to be. So th- thank you for that. <laughs> so I, wa- yeah. I wanted them to be different. And then the second thing he said was uh, our, the first cuvee that we, we put together, the pick uh, way back in whenever. Uh, he said that uh, if he did not know the orientation or producers of this wine, he would have thought that it was a, one of the better houses in Chateauneuf-du-Pont. Because uh, we do we do Rhone wine. Oh wow, we do Rhone wines. So Syrah, Grenache, Moved. Uh, we used to have some Cunois, and since so we don't have that anymore. We also do whites. We have uh, Picpoul Blanc, Grenache Blanc, uh, Roussan, and Viognier. Uh, small production stuff, and we do all that. Yeah. Oh, la- last thing I was going to ask you was, do y'all have a wine club that you can join if you want to join that? Well, uh, we do have a wine club. We do, like I said, we do all small productions. Some of our productions do sell out to our wine club. Uh, so if there are particular wines that you want to get access to, like the hedge, depending on the production size, sometimes goes away during our release to our club members. Uh, and then we don't have it available to pour in a tasting room or for people that just call up. So that's the best That's the best access to uh, our small production wines and to any, anything that we're, that we're doing. But we have wine. If you would like something, you know, give us a call. 805-238-2083. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we want to drive as many people to y'all as we can. Last thing I want you to talk about is uh, talk about your work with Must Charities. We started a few years ago. Oh, God, this is so many years ago. I can't even remember when we started. Uh, probably 15 years ago. There were a few of us in the wine industry that you know, thought there was some things backwards about the way that we were doing our charitable giving in that, uh, you know, a lot of us would travel across the country, put these amazing packages together, like for the high museum, you know, for auctions, we'd come and we would promote and, and raise money for them. And we, I, I, we all realized that when it came to our own backyard, that none of us were really as, uh, um, cognizant of giving here as we were, you know, helping other people. So we decided to try to figure out a model that would allow uh, businesses to leverage the goodwill that they've created and generate a cash flow stream from out of the area. Uh, we're a small community. You know, there are some very rich people in our community, but, you know, they're the first people go, first place people go when they need to raise money. And we're like, right. we, we needed to take the pressure kind of off of off of them and have other ways to generate revenue that wasn't directly from this area. So basically, we created Must, Must Charities, which is a kind of a grant-based uh, charity in that we go out and we solicit vendors, providers for services to come up with a plan of what they would need to be able to grow their ability to serve more people. And uh, we, have a, we have a team that, of professionals from the area that donated their time that will sit down and work with these, with these people, kind of flesh out their, their, their game plan. And I can tell you, we've had many people come in and ask us for money. And we, when we send it back to them, we're like, you need to ask for more because these are the things that you need to do. And the way that we were funding it was businesses like myself and, and other businesses. I tax myself a dollar a bottle so that for every bottle that I sold, they would get a dollar. And it generated a lot of, it generated a lot of revenue. Um, and it came from outside of the area, which is, was important. Uh, we've been able to save and grow the, the uh, Boys and Girls Club in Paso Robles. We created a Boys and Girls Club in Atascadero. We've been able to help grow a, a shelter for 
families and battered women that was having trouble kind of uh, meeting all of the requirements that the, the governmental agencies have for a, a product like that. And they were actually able to grow and, and, and they were able to put in a, a, com- a commercial kitchen and then use that kitchen to actually start to raise revenue for themselves. So that was a, a good thing. We also partnered with uh, the local food bank uh, who didn't have a distribution network. And we were able to tie them in with some of uh, the local uh, businesses that have the ability for delivery and trucking. And that was like one of the places they came and they asked us for like, I don't know, two or three big trucks. And when we went through the process of kind of figuring out what they needed, uh, we were able to like partner them with people that already had infrastructure in place. Uh, and then also, you know, show them that they didn't need this huge truck. What they actually needed was like three or four vans. And so that's kind of the kind of what we do. We, we organize it to facilitate helping charities provide more service. So we close all of our interviews with rapid set of questions called the smart 16 in honor of coach smart. Right. And we just want to roll through them with you real quick. All right. So, I, got, I got them written down here. So I hope that's. Oh, not, perfect. I hope it's not. No, that's not cheating. That works even better. I thought of a couple answers. So. All right. Perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. That's why we sent them in advance just in case. So first one is what's your middle name? Uh, Lee. L-E-E. And since you're a former player, we asked the second question different. Who is your funniest teammate that you ever played with? Oh, funniest. You changed the. I had the answer for the for the question on the page. <laughs> you can get your favorite um, dog too. John Little. What is your favorite game that you ever played in? A favorite game that I played in, Super Bowl. Yeah, that's a tough one to beat. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean the national. Well, there was the national championship game. That's a good tie. I, I got to have two. Yeah. The Sugar Bowl national championship game and the Super Bowl. What is your favorite rivalry that Georgia has? I always like playing Auburn. I don't know why. It felt good. I mean, you know, we, we even lost to them in Athens, uh, but I would say them. Uh, the people that I, that I hated playing was Kentucky. I came out of Kentucky beat to hell every single time. They were, they were just mean. They were just outright mean. What is your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference? I don't think it exists anymore. I would say the Gator Bowl for the Georgia-Florida game. What is the loudest home game you ever played in? Oh, I don't know. You know, they were all so loud. Really impressive. Noise was not as big an issue, I don't think, earlier on. I mean, I watched that, that Notre Dame game on TV. That, yeah. that seemed insane. The coolest thing that I ever saw at the University of Georgia, and, and it seemed like the University of Georgia was always loud, except for the one game that I took my wife to. She, everybody sat on their hands for that game. But during Herschel's time, they used to do Herschel Walker. I don't know what they do now. Herschel Walker. That was extremely uh, impressive. And then humbling as a senior, because they used they did when I was a senior, they did Terry Hogue. And that was, oh, that's cool. That was like <clears throat> beyond unbelievable. I mean, to have an entire stadium chanting your name is pretty freaking crazy. So, oh, yeah, that's incredible. All right. You get to choose the headlining act at the Georgia Theater. Who do you choose? REM or the B52s, but REM. 
I mean, that's they were they were the kings when I was in school there. You know. Yeah. All right, you have are they pl- attending. Have they the played world- there? You know, I don't. I don't know. I'm sure they have at some point. I would think. All right, I got their manager's number. Maybe we should work that out. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You are attending the world's largest outdoor cocktail party as a fan. What cocktail are you are you mixing? Or you don't have to choose a cocktail. I'm pouring the hedge. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah, I'm pouring the hedge. All right. You're back in Athens for one meal. What's your favorite place to eat now? Uh, I like both of uh, Hugh's places, the National, and then I did a, a wine dinner. I'm, I'm not going to remember the name of it, which is embarrassing. Uh, up there by Five Points. What was, what's the name of that place that Hugh's got? Uh, five and ten. Five and ten. Yeah. Yeah. He does an amazing job. An amazing job. The food. The food is impeccable. When you played, did you have any game day superstitions? No, not really superstitions. I mean, I did thing. I did things a certain way because I liked them, but I didn't think it was gonna. It didn't bring me luck. Maybe it just made me feel feel comfortable. So I guess maybe that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like my socks pulled all the way up. Um, so I would just like wrinkle them up to the top of my tape and that's about it. What is your favorite Sanford stadium pregame tradition? So whether it be dog walk, lone trumpeter, red coat, marching band, spelling Georgia, Larry Munson coming over and doing battle hymn of the bulldog nation. What's your favorite? See, we're in a locker room. We don't ever get to see any of that stuff. That's, that's true. That's true. Um, I would probably say the, uh, although it was completely different than they do it now, probably the dog walk, you know, walking through the stadium that first time from the tracks to the, to the locker room, it was, it gave you goosebumps. I, you know, it, I realize they need the seating too for the East end, but it would, you know, if the, if the tracks were still, still there, that would still be a pretty cool tradition. Yeah. Do people still sit out there even though they can't see? So it's funny. There's a lot of tailgating uh, by the by the railroad tracks now, um, and a lot of that's blocked off for game time just because the uh, the traffic is so nuts and there's so much pedestrian traffic. Right. So yeah, it, it th- there's a big tailgate scene though on that end of the stadium, like by the tracks. People park right okay. behind the tracks and stuff. So All right. yeah, it's it's so still, still kind still of going weird. A bit. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, black jerseys, yes or no? Eh. Really. <laughs> That, that has been a point of people are either very passionate about it or they're like, it's just red for me all day long. Right. So do they, they see, they don't, right. wear, they don't wear the silver britches anymore. Do they? Well, so this is the thing it's in theory, they're supposed to be quote unquote silver, but whatever Nike's given them now, it like, it's almost like an off gray. Like doesn't, it doesn't pop. No. It's not like that. We no, had, we had silver not, britches when I was, I think when I was in school. Yeah, that, that's that's one that people have talked about a lot. They want Nike to bring that true color back. Yep. All right, what is the what is the loss you're still not over? There's uh, not. I, it's hard to get over losses. So uh, there's three: Auburn at home, my senior year. I think they want did they won the national championship that year. I don't know. Auburn at home, my senior year. Penn State and Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. What's what's your order, or what was your order at the varsity? I uh, didn't go to the varsity that much. I don't cheese dog. I don't. Do they make them? I guess uh, it seems like I would get it like a chili cheese dog or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. I always get the chili dog when I go. That, that's my go-to. All right. There ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing noon kickoffs. Yes or no? No. 
No. Eight o'clock, seven o'clock, nine o'clock, five o'clock. They, they can do away with any start time after three o'clock. But noon to three is fine. It's just so hard to sit all day and wait for a game. Oh, yeah. I never thought about it from that perspective. That's true. Yeah. I would much rather sleep in a little bit, get up, put my uniform on, and go do what I'm going to do. To have to just kill time. Because then the coaches are just going to like inundate you with like meetings because they don't want you to go get in trouble. You know? So they're just going to, so you, go, you can't go take a nap. You can't go do this. And they're just going to make you go over stuff that by that time you should already know. I mean, what your game plan yeah. is. You shouldn't have to go over the game plan again the day of the game. So, yeah. Noon's fine. All right. Last question. College football playoff, expand to eight teams or find how it is? Uh, go back to the way that they used to do it. Like, So, hold on. I want to clarify so like, that. When you say a, that, like, you mean go back to BCS or go back yeah, to when no. the polls used to go, determine it? Go back to API or AP, UPI, coach's poll. Go to the poll. This look, guys. These are collegiate athletes. They're supposed to be playing for their for their school, which they're supposed to be going to. This is not a professional sports league. I mean, there's so much money in the NCAA. I understand how it's gotten to where it's gotten, and money drives most decisions. But kids do not need to be playing sixteen games in a season. Don't need to be doing it unless you're going to give them some of the money. I mean, there's there's absolutely no reason. So I would go back to the coaches' poll. Let people debate it. It was one of the fun things. You know, if there was AP had one thing and the UPI had somebody else, everybody got to argue over it. You know, and if you were unanimous, you were unanimous. But, uh, you know, what they're doing to, with these kids now I think is horrible. I mean, yeah, it's fun to play football games. Yes, yeah, it's fun to play in big games. Uh, but these guys are supposed to be students first, athletes second. And – 11 or 12 games in a season is more than enough. Otherwise, just start up a, a semi-pro league and let the NFL pay for it, and all these guys can go play in the semi-pro league. So, Yeah. So there's, I think there's some sentiment with that as well. I think that's why they've been trying to push so hard lately to – at least allow the kids to operate in the free market so that, well, that you know, doesn't, look at, that doesn't, there's, so then you're going to get like in the, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I mean, then you're going to get in, like in the NFL, you're going to have, you know, 20% of guys making 80% of the money and the other 80% of guys fighting over the other yeah. 20% of the money. No, it's yeah, not, that's fair. It's not, equitable. yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a fair point. That's an absolutely fair point. I think that's kind of what they're fighting with it. I mean, the same thing, I mean, the issue that you get in the NFL is, and, the, you know, when we were, went on strike and stuff and they said, oh, you're going to get, you know, part of ticket revenue and, you know, they got to give you whatever the revenue, whatever the revenue is. And then they would tell you what the average salary was going to be. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you whack up $47 million by 47 people. The average salary is going to be a million dollars, but guess who's right. going to see a million dollars? Only 20% of the team, everybody else is going to be paying for, playing for minimum wage. And I mean, that's just the way, that's just the way nature works. So, yeah. These kids are working hard. It's a job. I got no problem with them getting paid. Coaches are making way too much money. Um, go buy some books or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, you have successfully completed Smart 16. Thank you for indulging us with that. Oh, my um, and Terry, just thank you so much for the time. I, we just loved hearing your story, and we're, we're excited for, for everyone to hear it. And thank you for your dedication to Georgia and for, for all you've, you've given to the university. Well, you know, they've given me a great life and it's, it's 
the very least I could do, go dogs. Yeah, go dogs. Thanks so much, Terry. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Enjoy. Well, that wraps up our chat with Terry Hogue. Boss, what were your thoughts? Man, I know more about winemaking than I ever knew that I wanted to know. <laughs> his knowledge on that is is amazing. And to hear his story about how he pretty much did the majority of all of it on his own in the beginning, you know, start the business from the ground up other than a couple people helping him out. It's just, it's just wildly impressive, but going back to his career, I mean, it pretty much speaks for itself, but the ins and outs that you don't know about how he, he basically quit and then came back and just kind of by luck that the, his position coach just didn't tell coach Dooley. So he was able to come back in and reclaim his spot and, he was able to have that that great year with uh, leading the or leading the nation in interceptions and still setting holding the record with uh, the SEC um, record for interceptions. And then you know if you don't know his story about I didn't know that beforehand, which I just was a really key part of his story and how he said that he felt that getting away from the game and getting away and clearing his head, you know, really helped propel him. And then just hearing him talk and the emotion that he talked with talking about hearing the fans chant his name um, at Sanford stadium and just how much that still means to him to this day. I mean, that was what 37 years ago, give or take. And just still to this day, still hearing, you know, how much that means to him. He was a great interview, extremely, extremely knowledgeable in not just all things football, but uh, I love how he's still paying homage to his playing days um, not just at Georgia, but in the NFL with his current business. Um, you referenced the hedge. Uh, he also talked about um, his wine, the 46, you know, uh, referencing the Buddy Ryan defense. Yeah, I had kind of three main takeaways from the chat with Terry. The first one was he just seems to me to be a renaissance man of sorts, right? Just seems like the type of person where if he gets his mind set on doing something, not only is he going to do it, but he's going to do it well. I think that's evident in how well his football career turned out, but also how well the wine business is done. And, you know, he just casually slips in at the conversation. They learned how to fly so he could fly his son down to, to play sports and all that. And he, he just seems like the type of guy that if he puts his mind to it, he's going to achieve it and do an excellent job at it. Um, so I thought that was cool. I thought it was really insightful, um, you know, look into who he is and what makes him tick. And also, Loved hearing a couple stories. I was with you. I did not know the story. I had heard he had considered um, walking away from football, but I didn't know he had actually told his positions coach that, hey, I'm I'm done. I'm out and kind of had to go have some time to himself to come back to that. I, I thought the other really cool story and I got chills when he told it, but the emotion that he spoke with about when Coach Dooley told him he was going to be called up to the game squad for the Sugar Bowl in the national championship game, I thought was a really cool story. And he got choked up talking about it. Um, so I thought that was great. I um, thought that was just a tender moment and, and really cool. So that was fantastic. And, um, you know, the last thing was just how, I guess – I don't know if reverence the right word, but just how, how much Georgia means to him. You, you can just tell that, right? Like uh, the way he spoke about his time there and the way he has continuously honored his time as a dog. And, um, you know, I, I think he mentioned in there that there was a, a tribute to Coach Dooley on the first release of The Hedge. So, you know, obviously just 
has a lot of heart and a lot of emotion for University of Georgia and his time there. And uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed him. Just seems like a a kind soul and and someone that you can root for. And and obviously was was a hell of a player and a damn good dog. So uh, I really really enjoyed talking with Terry. And I'm saying I'm. I love wine and I'm really excited to try some of his stuff. I've ordered some of it and it should be um, on its way. So I will certainly report back on how it is, but I'm really excited. And everything I've read about is that they make just a fantastic product. The other part is if you are, you know, in that area going out that way, make sure and make a trip to TH state wines and, and check out um, Terry and his wife, Jennifer's product. Cause, cause it's awesome. And obviously we want to support, support a, a damn good dog any way we can. So like I said uh, in the intro, go ahead and, and find them on Instagram and follow them at TH underscore Estate Wines. Again, that's at TH underscore Estate Wines. And then their website is THEstateWines.com. And you can order direct off the website and they'll ship right to your door. That That's what we did. So uh, I'm excited to give that a try. And and once again, thank you so much to Terry for being so gracious with your time and, and coming on and telling us your Georgia story. And, and with that, go dogs sick them go dogs hey, george is better now sick of being upsold at gyms my guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.